It's interesting, some of these mornings that I get ready to come and communicate the Word of God. This morning, for some reason, you know, I've been doing this for 28 years, and um, in the very beginning, the very first few weeks and months, when I would get up and preach, it would be such a thrill and I'd think to myself, I can't believe they pay me to do this. But then there comes a time in the 10th year, in the 15th year, when the grind starts to, to get to you, and you think, oh, they can't pay me enough to, to do any of this. And yet today, um, for some reason, I have such a, a great deal of freshness and such a privilege to come before you and to talk about um, this Old Testament book of Esther. So would you turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 1 today. We begin uh, the second installment, if you will, in our epic saga series. And this series is entitled Esther, an epic saga of God's providence. And the lesson in the book of Esther that stands out the most is not from what is written In the text. But interestingly enough, it's what is absent in the text. In this entire book, God's name is nowhere to be found. And because of the absence of religious values and the presence of sensuality and brutality in the book of Esther, it's posed a problem with church leaders throughout history. Did you know that in the first 700 years, of the Christian church, not one commentary was written on the book of Esther. Here's what church leaders have said about the book of Esther. I think you'll find this interesting. Martin Luther starts, and he says, I am so great an enemy to the book of Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Can you believe that? Someone wishes that a part of the Bible is not in there. Martin Luther, of all people, really. James Hastings says this. He says, The book of Esther does not say much about God, but his presence broods over it all, and this is the real spring that moves the movers that are seen. Matthew Henry, who wrote this great volume commentary, says... But though the name of God not be not in it, the finger of God is directing every minute, many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. And my mentor, Chuck Swindoll, says this. He says, God doesn't sit for a pent portrait in the story of Esther, but his mind, his will, his power, and his presence are working in concert on every page. It's going to be a great time over the next six weeks in the book of Esther. Esther is a story to understand God. I have counseled with many people in my office and in the fireside room and on the plaza over cups of coffee at uh, coffee houses and other places. And as we've talked, inevitably something comes out. Someone will say, they will say something like, because they're going through such a tough time, in their life, they will say things like, God seems so invisible. He seems so distant and he seems so far away right now. 
And as we dive into this study in the book of Esther, I think we'll begin to address this nagging problem that every honest Christian has at least once in their life when they feel like God's invisible, he's distant, he's, he's not around at all. So if we get nothing else out of this series, my hope is that we will simply understand God better. And so let's start with a statement that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans here in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways, he says. And so take your pen and underline just that first phrase there. Unsearchable are his judgments. Underline that or circle that or or make a, a mark right there. Because here we find that God's mind is so deep that our human mind can barely scratch the surface. His thoughts are beyond our ability to comprehend fully. Unsearchable are his judgments. The second phrase there, you can guess what it is. Underline that. It's unfathomable, his ways. God's will is unpredictable. It's... um, too complex for us to understand as long as we're bound by this, this fleshly, this earthly, this earthly body. Now, the character of God is not like this so that he can distance himself from you. But the reality and the reason is, the reason why God is like this, and this is one explanation, the reason why is because he's God and you're not. That's the reason why. And our problems, all our problems seem to start when we want to be God, but we can't. So when you put together God's unsearchable mind and his unfathomable will, God operates in something that we call his providence. In your notes there, there is a definition of providence. It's, you know, God's providence is, in, in a way that is not visible, God governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous, of his miraculous. Now, providence comes from the Latin word, and it comes from the Latin word pro, which means before or ahead of time, and vitentia or videre, which means to see. We get our word video, I think we understand that. We get our word video from it. So providence, when you put those two things together, words together, it literally means to see ahead. That's what providence is about. Now in the biblical context, providence means God sees what is ahead and has at work to accomplish his future purposes. That's what providence is about. The book of Esther is an epic saga of God seen ahead of time. That's what the book of Esther is all about. So in the book, we find some main characters here. Let's kind of go over them real quick. The first we find is a, a gentleman, a, a man, gentleman maybe is not the right word, but a man named King Xerxes. Now some of your Bibles um, uh, uh, say not Xerxes, but Ahasuerus, okay? And so the, his name is Ahasuerus or Xerxes. He's the king. In the book of Esther, Xerxes is the, in the third year of his 21-year reign. He's a very powerful king. He ruled a vast Persian empire from India all the way to Ethiopia. It, it was a large piece of land. 
He was the most powerful man on the earth at that time. The second main character is a woman named Queen Vashti. Now, uh, we don't know too much about her, but we do know that she was strong-willed and she was an independent thinker and she wasn't afraid to go against the wishes of her husband who was King Xerxes. It's her strong will that brings about the first conflict in her story, and we're going to get there today. The third main character is Haman, and we'll learn more about him next week. Fourth character is Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is a godly Jewish man living in Persia, of all places. So many years before Esther's story, the Jews had a civil war, and it, it, uh, it, it, it caused a, a split in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, eventually, God judged both kingdoms because of their stubbornness and their unfaithfulness and their disobedience. And over hundreds of years now, and we're not going to get into the details of that, one day we will, kingdoms conquered kingdoms, and King Xerxes became king over the vast Persian Empire. The book of Esther, though, is just a slice of history. It's just this, this, little, this little story, this slice of history in the life of Jews living in exile in Persia, of all places. Mordecai was a descendant of one of the exiled Jews, and he's the cousin to the fifth and final main character in our story, and that is Esther. She's the fifth main character. Esther is a young woman whose Persian name means star, and she's beautiful, and she's a forgotten orphan girl who God used to be the key to the very survival of her, of, of her people. Now, this is a wonderful message. This book of Esther in, in its entirety is a wonderful message for anyone who's experienced brokenness and heartache, who's been just crushed by life. For anyone who's felt like their past is so dysfunctional, so discolored, so disjointed, it seems like there's no way for God to redeem you at all. The book of Esther tells us that God is present, even though you don't see him. That he is working, even though you feel like he's so far away. And he's in total control, even when you feel so out of control in your life. Because you just can't see him at all. Let's take a look at the very beginning of the story. We'll start in Esther chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to about the middle of chapter 2 today. We'll take some breaks to talk about what's going on. Let's begin. In verse 1 it says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign. Now let's stop there and put that thought on your back burner there, that, that it's the third year of his reign. Okay, so who can remember it's the third year of his reign? Raise your hand. I'm going to call on somebody for sure to Dave Gellner. You remember this. So you better take notes on this. It's uh, the, the what year of his reign? Third year of his reign. Now don't rely on Dave, not that he won't remember, but he's got that, okay? All right. It was the third year of his reign. He gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials and the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Now get this. For a full 180 days, 
he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. This was a six-month banquet. Which makes these celebrity blowouts, you know, these bashes, it makes those things that we see in the news and read on the internet look like elementary school cafeteria lunchtime, really. It's, this is a six-month banquet. There's, there's opulence and servants and loud music. Six months of an open bar, all-you-can-eat buffets, dancing and drinking and gluttony. It's, it's beyond Vegas. It's, it's, it's way beyond that. Now, archaeologists have uncovered ruins, and they found um, um, items with inscriptions about King Xerxes. And the, what they found in the inscriptions, they described Xerxes as the great king, the king of kings. That's the title of someone else, too, I think. The king of lands occupied by many races. The king of the whole earth. That's what was written about Xerxes on archaeological finds. Now, like most parties of this scope and magnitude, there is a hidden agenda here. There's a reason why there's a six-month opulent party. And so someone has got to ask this question. What is the purpose of this party? Okay, so someone think about that too. And for another group, They were invited to a second banquet, which was everybody, it seems. Take a look at verse 5. And when these days were over, the six months of parting was over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold, and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. I think you're getting the picture. It's a six-month party followed by a seven-day party here. And the question is, where's the queen in all of this? Verse 9. And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So there's a six-month banquet for, it seems like, leaders, you know, uh, politicians, heads of state, and then there's a seventh month, a seven-day banquet for everyone else, and then Queen Vashti throws a, um, you know, another banquet for, for the women. And then something awkward and unexpected happens, as things like that usually happen after such an opulent and wild party. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high, in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, inevitably, after a seven-month, six-month party has led to excess and drunkenness and out-of-control behavior, while in his inebriated state, the king decides to show off another one of his prizes. 
the physical beauty of the queen. Now, scholars debate, when you take a look at verse 11, it says, uh, Bring me Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. Now, scholars debate about the king's command. And some people think that when in, in that phrase, you, you look at that, and, and it meant that the queen was unveiled, meaning there was no veil over her face, which was scandalous anyways. Pretty conservative view of that. Other scholars take a more liberal view of that, and they say that he was saying, you can come in and wear only your crown and nothing else. Others say that the queen was pregnant, and that's why the reason why she didn't want to do this. But all in all, the king wanted others to envy him at this time. Verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, Queen Vashti was brave enough to say no and resist the insulting act of indignity here to the greatest power, the king of kings, right? The, the, the king of the world, the greatest power in the universe, verse 13. And since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and, and were closest to the king the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Now these seven men were different than the first seven men who, who, who were part of that party and bringing, bringing that news to Queen Vashti. Um, these were men who were the king's closest advisors. Verse 16. Then Memukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have served about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. Now, that's an overreaction, don't you think? Just because the queen said no, it's like all the women now will say no to their husbands. You can almost hear the sort of the talk between those guys. Yeah, can you believe that, queen? My wife's the same way. How about yours? Yeah, mine is too. She's so stubborn. Yours too? Mine is too. Wait till she hears about the queen. There'll be no controlling her then, right? Which leads to Memukan's solution, verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and be let it, let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in his own script and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Hmm. 
I think that edict goes all the way to the South Bay, I, I, I believe, I, I think. It's, it's kind of a crazy way to, to rule a kingdom. But this is the end of chapter 1. So we're getting this, the feel for what's really going on here. It's an interesting story. It's a power-hungry, egocentric king, an independent-thinking, strong-willed queen. But my question is, where's God in all of this, right? It's, a, it's an interesting story, but where's God? So here we are, chapter 2, verse 1. Let's take a look. Verse 1 begins with later. Now, stop there for just a second. When I look at the word later, with that word, I'm thinking it probably meant the next morning after the king recovered from his raging hangover, right? Later. But let's read further. Later, when King Xerxes fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So, remember from chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, what did we say, Dave Gellner? What year was it reign? Was his reign? Third year of his reign. Thanks, Dave. We, we can count on you there. It was the third year of his reign in chapter 1, right? When I read in chapter 2, and you look at verse 16, it says it was the seventh year of his reign. So, let's kind of put this together now. Well, let's do this. It means that four years have passed between chapters 1 and 2, but that word later describes four years, right? Now, history books tell us that King Xerxes reigned from 485 to 465 B.C., 21 years. So the events of chapter 1 must have happened in 483 B.C., which is the third year of his reign, right? And the events of chapter 2 must have occurred in 479 B.C., which was seven years into his reign. Now maybe some of you are thinking, you've lost me. But all of this to say is that historians also know that between 483 and 479 B.C., the King Xerxes made an ambitious but disastrous attempt to conquer Greece. So begs the question, why did he have those parties again? What was he doing before he invaded Greece? What was he trying to do? This banquet gives us a clear reason for this Six months of parties, plus seven days, plus the Queen's party. Because these banquets really were PR campaigns to garner support of the leaders of all of the Persian Empire to form this coalition so that they can mount a unified front to go get Greece. But what we know from history, they tried, but it didn't work. So later the king enters his opulent palace entry, weary from battle and defeated and depressed. He longs for someone who's going to be empathetic to greet him with understanding, who loves him in spite of the terrible loss of trying to take Greece. He's looking for comfort. 
He's lonely and he's despondent. There is no queen anymore. I think he longs for Vashti and he only remembers her beauty and her tenderness. So his advisor suggests in verse 2 of chapter 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed into the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So we see what's going on here, I think. The plan would not only get a wife for the king, but then she would be the most beautiful woman in all of the Persian Empire. So now we enter other main characters to the story, Mordecai and Esther. Take a look at verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew named Mordecai, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, Mordecai is totally disconnected from what's happening with the king and in the Persian kingdom. He's just this exiled Jew living in this capital city. He's a Jew living out his years in exile, and he's raising his orphan cousin, Esther, or Hadassah. Verse 8. And when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, really what's going on here is contestants in the beauty pageant were chosen all throughout the Persian Empire. It says, Esther was taken, if you take a look at verse 8. Now, this could mean Esther was taken by force, but it really suggests that she was taken against her will. It was certainly not something a young Jewish girl really wanted to be involved in in this beauty pageant for the king. But nevertheless, Esther won the favor of those judging the contest, and she was chosen as a finalist. Take a look at verse 9. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to to do so. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So you can imagine Mordecai sort of this adoptive father, really her cousin, was concerned for her well-being. He was pacing day after day, it says here, in the courtyard, worrying about the outcome of Esther. Verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Isn't that interesting? A year of preparation. Verse 13. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given 
given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shahashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summon her by name. Okay, so I think you understand what's going on here. Um, she gets all dolled up for 12 months, for one year. Perfume, lotions, anything she wanted, clothes, jewelry, and then she spends the night with the king. Esther and the other beautiful woman were now part of the king's harem, though. They would not return to their normal life. Nothing was spared, though, for the future queen. These beauty treatments, spa treatments, cosmetics, <laughs> potions for pleasure. I mean, it just goes on and on. Nothing, everything she could take with her. And it appears what really happens that after one year of beauty treatments, the finalists spend one night in the fantasy suite of the king to determine who would get the final rose and ultimately become queen. That's really what we're talking about here. Verse 15 to the end of our, of our text today. And when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she was asked for nothing other than what he guy, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. It was Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. We'll stop there for today. I think it's important for us to stop and say, what are, what are our lessons for today in this great story of Esther? And like I said, the book of Esther is, is, is in the Bible to help us to understand how God works. And so our first lesson for today would be this, that God's plans always move forward whether the circumstances are spiritual or secular. God's plans, whatever God's plans are, they always move forward whether the circumstances are going to be spiritual ones or secular ones. God's plans trump even the most godless banquet halls of ancient Persia. He is not limited to work just in the Christian context of life. Some time ago I was in Japan and I was speaking at different churches and at missions conferences for about two weeks. And I went to this church and the churches there are, are, are generally they're small. They're right in the middle of a neighborhood. It's sort of like they they, take a, they buy a house, they scrape the house off the lot, and they build a church building there. So there's homes right next to it. And uh, I went and spoke at this church this one Sunday morning, and then afterwards I was, they always have lunch afterwards, which is a great tradition in the Japanese church. But we, all, we sat and had lunch, and I, I was sitting there, and, and a woman came up to me and, and tried to speak to me in Japanese, and I really, I had to have a translator come, and we talked, and so the subject came up. I said, how did you come to know Jesus? 
And she says, oh, that's such a good story. I live next door. And so I'm thinking, oh, what a wonderful story. I mean, the church is a great example of, 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 of uh, Christian kindness, and they went over and, and uh, evangelized and witnessed to her, and then she came to know Christ. She lives right next door. And that's what I was thinking in my mind. And she says, I said, well, how did, how did this happen? I want to hear a great testimony of a great church. And she says, really, um, the church was next door, but one day I walked out into my beautiful garden, and I went and looked at her house afterwards. She had this beautiful garden out front. I walked out in this beautiful garden. I looked at the stones and the plants and the, the water feature that was there. And she looked at that garden every day of her life. She says, as I looked at this garden on this day, I asked myself for the very first time, and I don't even know where this question came from, she said. I asked myself, who made these things? And she said, I could not rest until I found who made these things. I started asking people all around me, who made these things? And finally, I went to the church next door, and I said, would you know who made these beautiful things? And the pastor told me about the God of all creation and about his son, Jesus Christ. And on that day, I gave my life to Jesus. God used a tree, a rock, a water feature in a garden that was there day after day after day of this old woman's life to put a question in her mind, who made these things? A question that was burning her heart so deeply that she had to get that answered. And God presents himself to her using nature. God's plans are always moving forward, whether the circumstances are spiritual or whether they're secular. The second thing that we can understand about how God works is God's purposes are not hindered by moral failures. I find this very encouraging. I don't know about you, but even in the vulgarity of a tragic, drunken decision to display his beautiful wife for the carnal pleasures of other men to see, God's purposes still are not hindered. God's purposes are not frustrated by your own sin. And sin does, does grieve God, and there will be consequences to follow, but his purposes are never hindered because he's the God of grace. God's plans always move forward, whether the circumstances are spiritual, whether they're secular. God's purposes are, are not hindered by moral failures. And the third thing that we'll take today out of this chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 is God's people are significant in spite of his shortcomings. God's people are so significant to him in spite of their shortcomings. It, I guess I could just say to you today, and for some of you, you really need to hear this today. That you matter to God. Regardless of what you're going through or what you have done. You and me, in all, all of our shortcomings, in all of our sin, in all of our failures, in all of our disabilities, in all of our bad attitudes. Esther was a foreigner. She was an orphan. And she was forced into this beauty pageant that she didn't sign up for. And God used her to save her people. 
you matter to God. He is, you are so significant to him. There's so much to learn and understand about God in our study of this great Old Testament book. Even if there's not even a mention or a reference to God, there's so much to learn about him here. And the great paradox of Esther, the great paradox is that God is omnipotently present even when he is most conspicuously absent. We'll learn more about God's providence in the weeks to come. Let's stand for the benediction. We have no Nova classes today, and so please enjoy this beautiful fall weather, Southern California fall weather, and uh, abundant snacks and coffee and, and uh, friendship out in the plaza today after the benediction. May God give you insight today to know that he's in control and he's working behind the scenes in your life. And may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the name of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son. Amen.